Today's sermon text comes from the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to pick up at verse 32, so we're sort of jumping right into the middle of the drama of this chapter. And this is a busy chapter. This is a dramatic chapter, so I, I want to catch you up on some of the excitement on the Jesus story so far, so that when we slide into verse 32, we sort of have an idea of what's going on. So chapter 10 starts off with Jesus teaching as he likes to do, which turns into him showing love and welcome to a group of children and other people that folks tend to think are, are best if they're just kept out of the way. From there, he's confronted by a rich man seeking uh, reassurance of his self-righteousness, an assurance that he does not receive from Jesus, who then takes the opportunity to warn against the potential dangers of wealth and comfort, which really freaks some people out because of the popular wrong notion that wealth is a sign of God's blessing and favor. And from there, Jesus pivots. Jesus heads towards Jerusalem, where the disciples and Jesus know that there are conspirators waiting for him, likely to have him arrested and killed. But Jesus is undeterred and heads towards Jerusalem for what will be the last time. Picking up at verse 32. They, Jesus, his disciples, and followers were on their way up to Jerusalem. And Jesus, leading the way, and the disciples were astonished. While others who followed them were afraid. Remember where they're going and what's waiting for them. The disciples are shocked and everyone else is scared. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do? asked Jesus. They replied, let one of us sit at your left hand and the other sit on your right when you come into your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink from the cup? that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? That's a wild sentence. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, indeed, you will drink from the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten, that is the rest of the disciples, the rest of the inner circle, hear about this, they became indignant, as you can imagine, with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So what did we just read? James and John, some of the closest, some of those closest to Jesus, the inner circle of the disciples, they're from the very beginning, like the beginning beginning. It's Peter, Andrew, James, and John are the first disciples that Jesus called back in chapter 1. They have heard all of his teaching. They have seen all of the miracles. They have had all of the quiet evenings around a campfire on the road and all of the evenings around the dinner table with Rabbi Jesus, their teacher, their mentor, their leader, their friend, their Messiah. And still they get it this wrong. James and John hear Jesus explain what is going to happen. Verse 33, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus lays bare the plan for the passion, the the soon coming suffering, the glory of the gospel. And their response is to try to see what they can get out of it. Right? What? Jesus has revealed the, the coming resurrection and their response is, let one of us be on your left and one on your right when you enter your glory. In response to hearing Jesus talk about what he's going to do for everyone, James and John try to make sure they get theirs. Don't judge. I see, I see you nodding. I see you amening under your masks. <laughs> don't think I don't. Don't judge because we do it too. And what do, what do I mean? Maybe we never say it as plainly as James and John, but the American church does try to use Jesus to her own advantage. See how I, how I framed that there so I don't have to admit that I'm talking about me? I can, I can hide behind that phrase, the American church. And you don't feel like I've called you out publicly for when you've participated in this as well. So that, that's a neat trick, right? We're all grateful for these, these little preacher tricks. So what do I mean what, what, when I say what the American church does? We have bought into a country club mentality. We have brought that to church, using the church as means of networking, attempting to to climb the ladder by who we know or worship with, and try to keep our congregations protected and insulated from otherness and strangers, from anyone that might threaten our way of seeing the world, gatekeeping the gospel from those who are different. We have brought a consumerist mindset into worship. Phrases like, I didn't really get anything out of worship today. Well, it wasn't for you. Uh, Or (laughs) the worship leader feels like he's heard that before. Or today's sermon just didn't really speak to me. When we prioritize our preferences over the progress of the kingdom, we get consumed with our little pet projects over outreach, and we bicker over cosmetics. We all know a church that is split over wallpaper or carpet. We we bicker over cosmetics rather than collaborate for missions and ministry. We make the church about an experience, what we receive from it. We, We elevate our ministers to the levels of rulers or gurus or celebrities, or we devalue them as consumer goods and commodities, expecting them to please or entertain us 
at the risk of their employment. When we search for a church to be a part of, we look for things like fun or how it makes us feel, rather than the depth of the community, signs of spiritual growth, commitment to values, strength of teaching, or passion for the gospel. Churches compete with each other in cities for glory or resources or people. We have put our commitment to community near the bottom of our list, behind other commitments, to, to the point where we only participate if there's really nothing else going on. Church as optional, auxiliary, supplemental. We ask the church to, to cater to our needs rather than asking how we can meet the needs of our community. We look for churches that will serve us rather than churches that will empower and challenge us to serve. Consumers and club members, these are the ethics of the world, not the values of the church. So what did Jesus have to say to all of this? Back to verse 42, Jesus called them together. You know how those who are regarded as rulers among the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. It's not to be so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, to empty, to surrender his life as a ransom for many. So let's connect this with the passage that Genesis read so well for us earlier in the service uh, from Romans 12, starting at verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, country clubs, consumerism, ladder climbing, but be transformed through the gospel by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, the church, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Whatever it is that you've been given to do, do it diligently. Do it cheerfully. Servant sacrifice. A servant is someone whose business is caring for others. His work is other people. A sacrifice, when properly offered, is fully consumed in its purpose. There's nothing left after it is offered. This is the role of the believer. This is our vocation, our calling, to be sacrificial in our service and to serve with all that we have. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
Philippians 2.4, look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not waste your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Matthew 23.11, the greatest among you will be a servant. Should I keep going? I can. Galatians 6.9, do not grow weary in doing good. Romans 12.13, take a constant interest in the needs of of God's beloved people and respond to them. Don't just notice, do something about it. Hebrews 13, 16, show mercy to the poor and do not miss an opportunity to serve others in kindness and love. This is true sacrifice and delights the heart of God. 1 John 4, 9, our love for others is our grateful response to the love God has demonstrated to us. Do you see a trend here? It's not subtle. Back to today's passages, Mark 10, Romans 12. Whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There was, a, there was this idea, and we often act like it's not around anymore. Uh, the, the way we might talk about it in a classroom setting is clericalism. That there are professional Christians who do church work, and then there's everyone else. The people in a church, when clericalism has infected it, think they don't really have a role. That theirs is simply to consume, to receive, to support the professionals up on the stage. In the past, this allowed for people to live in ignorance of their calling, the calling that Christ has placed upon their lives, while the priests gathered power for themselves. Today, it exists in our expecting pastors, priests, ministers to do the work of the church. Then, in the past, it led to clergy hoarding the scriptures and consolidating power for themselves. Today, when we impose it upon ourselves, we've been freed from it, but we like to put ourselves back in cages sometimes. When we impose it upon ourselves, it leads to complacency and passivity in our Christian lives. It allows us to relegate church, Christian community, and service to the category of things that other people do, or tasks that the professionals will take care of. There are people that are trained for this, you know. Something nice that we can choose to participate in when we have the time when we feel like it, when we're in the mood, when there's nothing else really going on. In a sermon on Romans 12, uh, on the same passage, I recently heard uh, the Reverend Tony Hatfield out of uh, Michigan. He put it like this. He said, Paul isn't urging us to give out of our abundance of free time. A life of sacrifice and community, a, a life of service to God to others, a life lived sacrificially in service to the gospel. This is what Christians have been called to. Such a way of being Christian requires an active relationship with Jesus and a deep study of his teachings. In the past, the church had put great faith and resources and energy into pursuits like apologetics, trying to argue people into faith trying to convince people through debate 
that Jesus is real and is who he says he is, trying to logically force people into a life of love, these sorts of endeavors seem to really be, be more self-serving or at best a, a form of inreach, something that Christians do for themselves and other Christians. I've never met someone who has been argued into falling in love with anyone. I've never met anyone who's been debated into surrendering their life to Jesus. But put into practice, a Jesus-focused, imaginative, values-driven ethic lived out humbly by a caring community is an act of evangelism in and of itself. It is an apologetic far more compelling than any arguments about the age of the earth, the exact date of the resurrection, or the authorship of the epistles. This sort of faith has something to say to our community, something to say to the issues of our world and the, the mind of our contemporary society. It possesses the ability to transform individuals, churches, and the world. Commitment, consistency, sacrifice, service. This sort of church has the tools, the freedom, and the imagination to face the future with faith, hope, and love. Let me pray for us as the band comes back to the platform. God, we are so grateful in your presence today for, for the high calling that you have put on our lives, that, that you have not called us to country club living, that you've not called us to be consumers, that you have not called us just to watch or just to, to, to see, that you haven't called us just to do something for an hour on a Sunday or, or, or maybe to to give an hour on Wednesday to, to watching someone talk on the computer. No, you've, you've called us because you want us, because you love us into a way of life that has the potential to change the world if we are brave enough to let it change us. Give us that courage, Lord. It's terrifying to, to step to take that, that leap of faith into the abandon that Paul has invited us into in that Romans 12 passage to be offered up as a sacrifice usually isn't pleasant for the sacrifice. There's, there are lots of lambs that have things to say about what it's like to be sacrificed. There's a step of courage involved. Give us the strength to follow Jesus, even when we know where he's going. The disciples know in Mark 10 where Jesus is going and what's going to happen when they get there. But they go, they follow, they sacrifice, and they serve. And even, even in their confusion, even in their weakness, even in their wrongness, they changed the world. And that same commissioning, that same calling, you've offered it to us. You don't need us, but you invite us. You don't need us, but you want us. The honor is, is too much for us. Give us the strength 
to pursue this calling. Give us the courage to take the next step. For some of us, it's the first step. For some of us, it's the thousandth. But we need your help to take it. Help us to prioritize our lives around your gospel, around your kingdom. Transform our hearts and our minds, the way we use our time, the way we use our bodies, the way we use our resources, to be about you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.